Please be seated. Our scripture lesson this morning is found in the Gospel of Matthew. It is chapter 11, beginning with verse 2. When John heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come? Or are we to wait for another? Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? Someone dressed in soft robes? Look, those who wear soft robes are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. See, I am sending my manger, man, messenger, a manger too. <laughs> I'm sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist, yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Let's pray. Bless, O Lord, the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts. O Lord, our rock, our strength, and our redeemer. Amen. Would you take just a moment and welcome Juan with me? So nice to have you here. Thank you for having me. One has been with uh, Kindway and Bark Ministries since March. So new to your role, but a very important one in that he's creating the uh, communications that are going out across the area to be supportive of those ministries and, and also is the director of development. So big job, big stuff. This morning as we read this scripture, the question comes up from John the Baptist, are you the one we're waiting for or is there someone else that we're to expect? It really is the pivotal question of the time. Are you the one? Now, it's important to remember that the context in which this question happens is a mixed one. There were some Jewish communities expecting a Messiah, and there were others that did not. The Qumran community expected there to be two different Messiahs. Even when the Jewish communities had an understanding that there was a Messiah to come, 
the nature of that Messiah was up for debate. Was he going to be a royal kind of king and sit upon a throne and rule from that perspective? Was this Messiah going to be a conqueror, uh, a warrior, one that would establish the kingdom by the, the annihilation of those who were enemies? It wasn't sure who this royal person would be, so what would the reign of the Messiah look like? In other words, uh, John's not only asking, are you the one, or should we wait for another? It really is the question within us as well. I think that any time in history, even the strongest of Christians have asked this very question. Is this Jesus the real thing? Is there anything to our faith? Does the church have a hold on something that, that really matters? Or is the tale of Jesus and Christmas just some charming story? Ultimately, we wonder, is our time investing and trying to figure out this fate thing something that is worthless and powerless against the forces of darkness that dampen our hopes and crush our spirits? Is this the real thing? Juan, when was it that you began to question in your life if Jesus was the real thing? I think for me, it started at a very early age. I was raised in a divided house. My mom was the most faithful and still is the most faithful person to the faith that, who, who I know, and my father is a non-believer. So there was a lot of friction, a lot of tension in the house, and um, you can imagine there was a, a lot of uh, turmoil in their relationship. Um, my dad was an educator and a coach, and in our community, in the high schools and junior highs, and I wasn't one who was able to really ever meet his expectations, so it didn't take long for me to learn that uh, I was really developing this idea that my father was rejecting me. Uh, he would shame me often, and uh, I was scrawny, he would shame me in that, and uh, it seemed like he was always waiting around every corner to kind of trap me in something so I can uh, be shamed in some way. And so I learned very early on to be self-reliant and dismiss him um, in my preteen years. And so in my early teen years, I'd attend church with my mom. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, I, I was uh, very active in the church. And uh, however, on the weekends, after a weekend of partying, I was in church with my mom. And I think in both instances, I think I was just trying to escape the problems at home. Uh, I'd, I'd be getting drunk on Friday and Saturday and then hung over in church with my mom, seeking God to, to give us relief. And uh, eventually, at about the age of 16 or 17, my mom had a nervous breakdown. And uh, she was then uh, diagnosed with schizophrenia and bipolar. And so here's the most faithful person I know now coming ill. I'm turning to God, hoping he would uh, help her and doesn't seem to, to be working out. So my dad, then uh, when she was put into the psych ward, um, went to the church, uh, not for his sake, but for hers. 
And uh, he became very angry when they didn't know who she was because uh, they seemed to know who she was when they wanted to bill her for her tithe. But when they needed her, when we needed her, they, they didn't seem to, to know. So um, with my dad venting about this, it kind of was uh, the straw that broke my back and I began to become very jaded. And so I began losing my belief. And uh, at, at around the same time, my, my girlfriend at the time, who was 15, I was 17, um, her mom had a nervous breakdown as well and was diagnosed with the same conditions. And so we immediately found ourselves over the household of uh, three of her younger siblings and five of her younger nieces and nephews. And we tried to make things work and, uh, and, and it, it was very stressful. We couldn't really maintain the house and eventually the kids were taken from us. And um, so I decided at some point I was gonna take matters into my own hands as I didn't feel I belonged to God's family. I felt he had rejected me as my dad had and because I didn't feel I belonged in my own family, well then, I didn't belong to anything bigger than myself. I essentially became the biggest thing in my life. And so I went down this path of self-service and, and ironically what happened eventually is that my father, who I felt rejected me, uh, offered me an opportunity to move to Ohio and get involved in the illegal drug trade and traffic drugs from Texas to Ohio. And, it, it, and immediately I was gonna be making probably about three times as much as the two of us were making in South Texas. And so it was very appealing and we did it. And I, I came to Ohio and did that for 10 years. And I was eventually arrested in 2003. So I had created this life where I really didn't need anyone or anything. I had uh, built this life around myself that kind of protected those I loved and took care of those I loved. And, um, I was only dependent on myself, and I really didn't know how broken I was, right? I, I, I didn't think I was broken at all, actually, and it was that attitude that ultimately led me to prison, right? Just thinking that uh, I had to do it on my own. But um, it's when I had exhausted every opportunity in this world and the life I was living had to offer that I, I really was broken, and it's then that I, I found the peace I couldn't find anywhere else. And that's when I began to ask if this Jesus is the one. Perfect. From the perspective of the early church, the scripture took place in a broken time. Uh, they believed back then that the conditions people were born with, such as blindness, illness, any of those things, came as a result of a disconnect from God, as a result of sin. This Messiah's arrival was supposed to usher in a new time and a new reality for those folks. That is, after all, what John's ministry was about, to prepare the way of the Lord. He wants to believe that this Jesus is the one, but he simply is not sure. What he had heard about Jesus' ministry really sounds great. But John's preaching about a new king, the new king, not Herod, was exactly what landed him in prison. He's awaiting trial. He can expect one of two things, either to be exiled or executed. So neither option is really good. So there could be no more important question in his mind. And that's when he sends his disciples to go ask Jesus, 
Are you the one we're waiting for, or is it someone else? Finding yourself behind bars, Juan, must have been a stunning experience for a young man. John wasn't going anywhere in prison, and neither were you. When you found yourself behind bars, did you question if Jesus was the one you really needed or the one you had been waiting for? It was interesting when I landed in prison because I was a very blasphemous agnostic when I got there. I didn't believe God existed. If he did, he didn't like me, right? And so uh, I was very angry and bitter. And I discovered I was very angry and bitter at a God I didn't think it existed, so which was kind of crazy. But <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm sitting in prison, and I'm facing life sentence in the federal courts, and I'm facing 21 years for drug possession in the state courts. And ultimately, I'm going to receive... 15 years out of that total. And as I said, I had created this bubble around me and I couldn't find peace in it. And that's when it all came down. And I'm finding myself now in jail for the first night. And I'm sitting in this uh, area where there are eight cells and I'm at the top of the stairwell looking down uh, at the other fellows in the jail. And uh, they're carrying on and, and being obnoxious and crazy. And I. Um, all I can think of is I'm going to do decades in this type of environment. And I was desperate. I had no way to help anyone. I had lost all control. And all I could think was, um, there's got to be something more. And in desperation, I threw a prayer up. I don't know who I was talking to. I didn't want God to be in Jesus. But I just said, God, whoever you are, if I don't get anything out of this, I just want to know who you are. Mm -hmm. And that's when I realized the saying you often hear, uh, you don't know God is all you need until he's all you have. And in that moment, I had nothing. I had lost every ability to take care of those I love. I had lost all the power and control over my life. I had lost my, my freedom. And then I learned something else. Just as in early in my life, I had perceived to be the worst in the church by not being there for my mom when she needed her, when she needed them, I, I, I had discovered the best in the church because when I had nothing else to offer but a broken life, only God's people, only Christians were coming to the prison to give us hope, to minister to us, to share the love of Christ with us. And so I began to follow Christ, and it's been through this journey that um, I've been freed. I wasn't freed from my circumstances, but I was freed ultimately from the character that led me there. Wonderful. Uh, I've always found it interesting that in this particular text, when John asked the question, Jesus doesn't answer him. He basically says, you go tell John what you hear and see, that the blind are regaining their sight, the deaf are hearing, lepers are cleansed, the lame are walking, etc., etc." In effect, Jesus says to John, I can't answer that for you. You're going to have to decide for yourself whether or not I'm the real thing. He suggests that we look at the evidence. What do you see? John has to answer for himself, and so does the crowd that's gathered there. Jesus reacts to the crowd's skepticism about John's ministry by asking, well, what did you expect to see? Some limp reed? Somebody in fancy soft robes, someone sitting on a jury, not in a jail. Let's just face it. 
It's easier to believe in God in the bright sunlight when all is joyful and freedom isn't anything you have to even think about than it is sitting in a prison behind iron bars when everything and every doubt shows up in the darkness. Is it fair, Juan, to say that you've experienced the skepticism of the crowd even today? Some folks question whether or not prison ministry is making a difference. If inmates are just putting on a show to get lesser time or, or whatever, or is Christ really changing lives in there? I think it's a little both. I mean, yeah, there are people who are going to fake it. Uh, in prison, we have what's called the parole board, and as people are approaching their release or potential release, they'll pick up the Bible and go to church, and then when they get turned down, they put it down and move on. But um, God is also really doing some amazing things in there. I'm, I'm reminded of sitting, I was sitting in a focus group with a, uh, the Dayton Seminary, I, I forget what seminary it was, but uh, the president and her uh, administrators came over, and we're sitting with a, a group of inmates and people from the seminary, and uh, we're carrying on, it's going pretty well, and at one point, one of the, one of the guests says, you know, this is, this is really a hard sell. Prison ministry is a really hard sell. People just don't think that it's real. What say you guys about that? And it got quiet, and I, I, out of nowhere, I don't know where it came from, but um, I responded in saying, well, maybe it's because the people you're talking to have been sitting in their pews for 30 years and never experienced the change that only God can give someone. And I don't know, maybe I was just projecting, right, because I was that guy, right? I, I, I had never experienced change, and, and I didn't think change was real and possible. And it seemed like the air got sucked out of the room, and it got really quiet. But the fact is, people are being changed in prison. Ministers don't take Christ into prison. Christ is there. Mm. And we just get to participate by getting involved with what God is doing in there already. Mm. And so what I'm experiencing in my time there, a decade and a half in this place, you live right next to somebody, so you know if what they're saying is true. Uh, the two, my two biggest examples in my life, or two of them, were uh, Stan and Lee. And Stan and Lee uh, were people who were uh, involved in gang life. One of them was in a racist gang, another one was heavily involved in his gang. They were uh, not the same race. And uh, Jesus Christ got a hold of both of them. And over time, they became best of friends. And the longer people serve in prison, the more desperate things become. So the stressors in life don't go away. They actually become more intense. And you know that it's under that stress where the true nature of a person comes to the surface. But to see these people over time lose more and more and then get diagnosed with terminal illness and and, and struggle with these things and not revert back to the people they were once. And, and then and above that, become friends when they hated each other before. Uh, it's only a, a testimony to the power of God changing the lives of men. And these, the, both of these guys were in for murder. Both of them were in for murder. And lifers. Lifers. So you can imagine as time goes on, their family starts falling away. Maybe they start losing their support system. So it becomes more and more desperate as time goes on. And if we're going to talk about success in jails and prisons, uh, I don't know that Jesus' ministry was successful because anybody chose to follow him. Jesus' ministry was successful because he obeyed. And I think that's the model for us. We don't go to prison because we get numbers. We go to prison because success is in obedience. 
uh, churches often think that prison ministry is a mission that we do. We, we take it with us. Uh, we have participated a long time in Bill Glass, which introduces people to the love of Jesus Christ. Uh, we've participated in Kairos weekends, weekends for a long time. Uh, that's when you make all those wonderful cookies and the inmates share them as signs of reconciliation with each other. Those are healing cookies. Uh, and the, with those Kairos weekends are transformational. Uh, Stony Brook has just gotten started into the Embark side of prison ministry where we're helping uh, folks who are transitioning back into the community, restored citizens as they begin to navigate. Can you imagine uh, having been in prison for 30 years and trying to navigate when you got back out? Technology, uh, communities, everything has changed. Uh, but we see the church's prison ministry is this is what we are taking then we go home. You've said, though, that prison ministry, the prison is really a church plant, that it is the mission field, and that we're coming to participate in your mission field. Uh, if that's true, then help us understand, if you would, the area in which we are able to help be transformative. I think what's, where we get our information about how we do missions is as we enter this season, right, the, the coming of our Lord, him uh, emptying himself out to redeem us from our sinful nature, right? Jesus Christ in the flesh, leaving the comforts of whatever that looked like for him and entering our fallen world. I think that's where we get our information about how we do missions. We do it everywhere else. We, when we go to Belize or we go to Africa or we go somewhere else, even the inner city, we, we, we go there to help and to offer the gospel, but we also prepare people in that space to become leaders in their context. Mm -hmm. And so what often happens in jails and prisons is people will come in, and, and it's effective too, you know, we'll, we'll sing to them and, and we'll, we'll, we'll deliver a sermon, and maybe we'll have an altar call, but we don't do missions that way anywhere else. I don't think the church would thrive anywhere else if we did so. What's effective are the ministries of which you guys are supporting already, Kairos and Torch and, and, and Bill Glass. Uh, where they're not only going in to offer the gospel, but they're developing leaders and community in that place where they can then take the place over for Jesus Christ. That the church should not, that there should be an indigenous church. Jesus left his church, right, on this world, and he empowers his church to lead in their community. Well, what's working in prisons, especially the one where I was for 15 years or so, is that churches are coming in to equip the residents in women's and men's prisons to, to live for Christ as leaders in their context. And that makes all the difference in the world. Yeah. And so what we're seeing is that in, in prisons, we have the, 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 the spiritually lame and the spiritually blind and the spiritually deaf, right? Those who are uh, suffering the effects of leprous, leprous cancer and the spiritually dead, they're all raised by the power of God mm -hmm. through Jesus Christ in that place. And they are, in spite of all the stressors that are still around, still living faithfully for Jesus. And so, so that's, what, that's what we think yeah. is different. It's interesting, I don't think we're ever, I'm not sure we're ever gonna stem the tide of those going in. But maybe we can really make a difference together 
on how people come out and the difference they can make while inside and then again while outside. I know two of your peers have gone to seminary, as have you. Well, eight of us went through seminary on my, in my last four years at Weinbrenner Theological Seminary out of Finley, Ohio. They, and then people we mentored have gone home and not only have their lives been changed and the effects they had on their family, they're on ordination track. Young men, the youngest, the wildest of the, of the groups in prison, um, they're going home and not only affecting their communities, but they're getting involved in their church and they're on the ordination tracks cool. in their churches cool. too. So if you could wiggle your nose and ask the church to do one thing, what would it be? I'd say, you know, seek God on the matter. If, if your call is prisons or if it isn't, See, see where God's calling you and let him change your heart to really get involved, to let God be present, let Christ be present through you in their crisis. With prisons, um, we gotta think differently about what we're, doing, what we're doing there. God is able to change me, he's able to change Stan, he's able to transform Lee, who remained faithful until the day he died, a month from his release after serving over 25 years in prison. Uh, then he, he, he's, he's the hope for anyone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so relationships are really the key. What we bring to the prison ministry to support you guys and yeah. then for what you guys do for the inmates as well. It's, it's all about building that community of faith. Now the scripture lesson points to a tremendous truth. Jesus' ministry has been about enabling persons to sense the reality around them in entirely new ways and to respond like prophets. All the miracles that Jesus performed, understand they were by their very nature subversive. Cleansing lepers, raising dead people, it was about restoring community to experiences everybody else thought were unclean. All of these miracles testified to Jesus bringing the kingdom of the Messiah already having arrived. When your life's been restored and you've made new, been made new by Christ's love and you're a part of restoring community and building new ones. If there were three words or just one sentence that you could say to folks who are still wanting to know if this Jesus is the one that we've been waiting for, what would you say? Well, that's pretty easy. I, um, I was one who believed God wasn't available to me, and many people in prison also believe God was not available to them. But having experienced this, uh, three words, he's the one. Amen. Jesus ended the scripture today by saying how important John is. John, as Jesus' messenger, is to prepare the way. Now that's huge. And Jesus then turns to the rest of us, the crowd, and says, just in case you're questioning, John, if he's the greatest one, well, he is. He's the best thing since sliced bread. And yet you, those of you who think you might be the least, you think you might be the least, are greater than he is. You have just as much witness, 
just as much power to change hearts and to change minds. You too have the gift of transformation. What do you hear when you ask Jesus, are, are you the one? What do you hear when Jesus responds, even you are greater than he? I'd say, what else would you expect? Thanks be to God. Amen. Would you rise and join in our